This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are welcoming you to the first in our series of Advent podcasts this year. It's a series of messages and therefore podcasts called Good News of Great Joy. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at some of the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, their fulfillment in the New Testament. Uh, and today we're looking at Isaiah chapter 7, uh, which is a bit like deja vu for us, Sam. We were there yeah. not that long ago. Yeah, when we were going through a previous series, we hit this passage and walked through the first 14 verses of the chapter. But uh, we paid attention a little bit more toward the historical side of things. True, because we were talking about we were talking about the kings, and then we were talking about Isaiah as a book of prophecy. So, uh, so yeah, we did. We focused a lot about, I would say, good old King Ahaz, but there was nothing good about King Ahaz. <laughs> yeah, not so much. Uh, so Isaiah chapter 7 does give us the story of King Ahaz. Now, Ahaz, I, I read one commentary that said the only good thing Ahaz ever did was to father Hezekiah. Mm-hmm. Who was a good king? <laughs> that's like that's, that's the, about right. That's the only good thing he ever did. Pretty much everything else, this guy was desperately wicked. You know, he was he was playing politics all the time, and and there's a little bit of me that has sort of a sympathy for the fact that you know Judah and Jerusalem they were like caught in a pincer move. All the time. I mean, they had mm-hmm. Egypt on the one side, they had Syria and Assyria on the other, and Samaria. They, you know, they they were, you know, Israel and Judah had had broken apart, and they weren't particularly friendly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Israel was stuck in between the. When you study ancient history, you know, Israel is basically the the crossroads of all these major empires. Egypt, the Hittites, the the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, uh, the Elamites before that. Like they're just and, – and one of the interesting things, this just came to mind, totally unrelated. Uh, but the reason in Revelation when it talks about the final battle being at Armageddon, Armageddon is, is – literally comes from two Hebrew words, har, which means mount, and Megiddo, which is a place in Israel. And so Har Megiddo got combined and we call it Armageddon. But the reason for that is it was such a popular spot for famous military incursions and huge battles where – because it was at the crossroads of all these major empires and even Israel itself. And so there were tons of battles that happened at Har Megiddo. And so yeah. it became Armageddon to us. It's where the final battle will take place because that's where all the battles happen. And so Israel was just this crossroads of battles all the time. You know, and even when Israel wasn't the target, if Egypt and Assyria wanted to go at it, they had to go through Israel That's to get correct. at each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's really true. So it's like whether whether we're mad at you or not, we've got to conquer you just to get you out of the way. You're like, <laughs> do you ever do you ever play the? Uh, uh, there's a board game called Risk. Have oh yeah, okay. I used to love playing. Risk. I loved playing Risk. Also, uh, my son and his friends used to play Risk. They'd have like practical all night Risk games. It was crazy. Uh, but there are times when you know you'd you'd have somebody like I'm coming after player number three there, and I'm looking at player number two, going, I'm really sorry. But you're in the middle here. <laughs> and, and so, therefore, I'm taking my armies and, you know, taking care of you here because I got to get at that guy. Uh, so, yeah, there are times when that happens. It's kind of like being in a, in, a, in a real life game of risk. And so at the time of Ahaz, we talked about this in the last episode, but they are facing the threat of invasion from the Arameans or the Syrians, uh, Israel to the north, the Philistines to the west. And even to the south, um, you have the – oh, it jumped out of my head. What nation is to the south? It's not Moab. It is Edomites, the Edomites. That's what it is. So the Edomites are threatening from the south. 
And so you have Ahaz who's in a really, really bad situation, and he's got God saying, hey, I'll defend you. Just put your hope in me. Or he's got this monstrous empire that's really powerful and terrifying everybody, and he's like, uh, I could be friends with them, yeah. you know. And that was the thing about Ahaz is that, um, you know, as he looked around and, – and this was not, by the way, an uncommon uh, judgment to make back in those days. If you were a king or a ruler, a leader, some just an average guy, Sam and Mark, living in Israel at the time, if something went well for someone, you said their gods favored them. So mm-hmm. if if you had two nations that were coming together and fighting, if one of them beat the other one – you would say their God is stronger. They've, they've mm-hmm. got the more powerful God. Um, and that was one of the reasons why the Lord would step in and defend Israel was so that he could demonstrate to the people of the mm-hmm. world in those days that he was the great, the one true God, the most powerful God, that these other gods didn't really even exist. And so he would prove it again and again and again and again by being with Israel in mm-hmm. battle. And they would win against ridiculous odds mm-hmm. because God was on their side. And very faithful people would call him out on his promises. You know, God, you said you were going to preserve this people. Will you allow them to fall? You know, the nations will mock your name. I mean, they would they would call God out on it, and God would be faithful to deliver them again and again and again. And that's kind of what's going on here, is that Ahaz has been looking around at who seems to be winning, uh, and when he saw some, when he sees someone that's winning the battles, I want to worship that God. So he's like worshiping these foreign gods in an attempt to curry their protection for Israel, but he also becomes enamored with some of these foreign kingdoms in general. Like he picks up their habits, some of which are horrible. Like Ahaz mm-hmm. sacrificed one of his children to Molech. Um, it's just awful thing. So this guy was like wicked and he was chasing false gods and he was just as bad a king as you can possibly imagine. And yet as the story opens, the Lord is going to send Isaiah to Ahaz with a promise to protect him if Ahaz will but rely on the Lord. Um, so let's look at Isaiah chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the, king of, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind." Um, you, you commented on this last time. That's a really interesting picture of basically gutless. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they're, they're scared right from the get-go. Yeah, you just imagine shivering, this yeah. leaf just shivering on the, the tree. Yeah. Um, so verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Um, so they're going to put a puppet king in there. Mm-hmm. That's the plan. Yep, these two kingdoms that are right to Judah's north are now threatening, and God's like, "Don't worry about them. They're yeah. they're smoldering stumps. They're almost out. Their their lives are short. Don't fear them." And and so then he gives them, uh, you know, thus says the Lord God, "It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within sixty five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia." If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Um, so despite the fact that Ahaz was desperately wicked, despite the fact that he was leading the people into this wickedness, this worship of foreign gods, you have God here still saying, I will be faithful. Don't mm-hmm. worry about them. I'm going to yeah. take care of you. And he doesn't make it conditional, you'll notice. He says, this isn't going to happen. Like, just just relax. It's not – if you, Ahaz, will do such and such, then I will protect you from these two countries. He, he just says they're not going to harm you. 
Um, by the way, Ephraim is the kind of the the seat of Israel. So it's the same thing. But Ephraim is one of the tribes where the capital city is. It would be like if a foreign country said, you know, Washington, D.C. or something right. like that. It's synonymous. It's Israel. I think we've mentioned in the past it, that was one of Joseph's sons, wasn't mm-hmm. it? That's Ephraim? Right. right. Mm-hmm. So Ephraim and I think the other one was Manasseh. Right. They were given land in Israel, even though they were not Jacob's children, they were Joseph's children, but that's the Lord just did that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so when they're talking about Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom. Now, the, the interesting thing to me here is that we see this, you know, time and again, Israel and Judah seem to be squared off against one another, a lot of hostility there. But these were this, these were one people at one time. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the idea that these that a country could fracture like this and that literally you would have brother against brother. I mean, literally, you know, you're having people fight against their kinsmen. Mm-hmm. Um, that must have made the situation even worse, I, I would think. That to see, a, you know, to see Israel, if you're in Judah, to see Israel, um, you know, with the, with other armies coming up against you. You you must have really I think at that point thought man this is this is a really crappy situation to find ourselves in yeah and and this is going to be true up until uh, you come to Jesus like the the northern tribes even later there's still some lingering animosity where they're not seen as as good by the southern. Uh, Jews of Judea as the northern. So Galilee is almost subordinate to Judea. Um, and and the, even in the first century, so 700 years later, this kind of uh, mild tension still remains between the two. Well, and it's something that we've talked about at times when we've talked about Jesus uh, talking about the Samaritans because that's – again, that's who these are. The Samaritans are people from the northern tribes and they were – you know, the Jews of Judea looked down on them. Yeah, uh, they were – so the goal of the the Assyrians, where the Samaritans come from, is when Assyria – so 70 years from what we're talking about, the Assyrians come through and they conquer all the, all the northern tribes. And so a region of that, they actually send people to interbreed with the Jews. And the idea was they were going to breed them out of existence. And so these half-breeds that interbred with the Assyrians were called Samaritans, and that's why they were hated by the Jews, um, because they were seen as you know a, a memory of what the Assyrians had done to the kingdom of Israel. And even, even north of where the Samaritans were, Galilee, which were not seen as the half-breeds so much, but they were seen as lesser than. Yeah. You know, they were Jews, but they were kind of not as good as the Judeans. So that's why you hear things like when Jesus, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, there was there was an attitude toward the the cities of Galilee that were they were subordinate yeah. in some sense. Um, I also wanted to reflect maybe for a minute on this idea of of some of the you know that God has different kinds of promises and purpose because mm-hmm. um, you mentioned it wasn't conditional. This isn't like, if you do this, if you do that, then I'll take care of you. But this was, you know, God had promised to protect and preserve David, you know, mm-hmm. the house of David, the city of David. It was it was because of his servant David that Ahaz was still benefiting from this. And, you know, we've talked about the first promise from God was in Genesis 3, when God promised that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. That there's that there is a there's a redeemer for all of this that's going to come. Mm-hmm. And there are certain things that God has said will happen that don't have anything to do with us. We can't mess them up. You know, it's like when God <laughs> says Lord. that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. It it there is nothing yeah. there that says unless Sam and Mark are just too bad. <laughs> in which case, I'm not crushing anybody. Um, and that's really kind of what's going on here is that there's are, there are certain promises of God. Because I think sometimes when people get – when they look at that, they think we're, we're, we're like being either capricious or we're, or we're letting God off the hook, quote, unquote. They're like, well, sometimes when you say God makes a promise, nothing can be done about it. Other times, God makes a promise and we mess up. And so then that's what – well, what is it? Is there, and I'm like, well, it depends on what kind of promise it is. You know, there are promises God made specifically when it comes to – 
the redemption and protection of his people. He did not make that conditional on his peep on his people because he knew <laughs> what his people were going to be like, you know? Yeah. So I mean if you, if you fast forward, so taking that, so the northern tribes, they all fall away, right? They're they're the first ones to be conquered by Assyria. And Isaiah doesn't – so they, they – it seems like they're messing up the plan of God by walking away from God and spitting in his face. And in the temporal idea of that, like in the moment, it seems like that because they are going to get conquered by Assyria later on. Right. Right? Syria and Israel won't conquer them, but God raises up Assyria to take care of their wickedness and to, to bring them into judgment. But I love what you find in Isaiah chapter 9. So if you fast forward two chapters after what we're talking about right now, he mentions two different tribes that would have been almost the northernmost tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. And those are Zebulun and Naphtali. And so chapter 9, which is a very famous chapter, this is where for unto us a child is born, a son is given. Mm -hmm. You get those on your Christmas cards all the time. But this is how God reasons. So Isaiah writes this. He says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So keep this in mind because it's going to be relevant for what we're talking about today. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So there's there's somebody in anguish. And he says, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, what's interesting about those for, from the Christian perspective is Zebulun is the tribe where you find the city of Nazareth. Well, what happens in Nazareth? Well, that's where Jesus grows up. That's where his childhood is. That's where he's going to become a man. And Naphtali is the tribe that takes the entire uh, western shore of Galilee where like 70% of the gospels take place. So the two places Jesus will spend most of his life are the tribes of Zebulun, where Nazareth is, and Naphtali, which is where Capernaum is and all the, the cities where he does most of his ministry. Mm-hmm. And it's saying, you know, in the former times, it was gloom. It was contempt. They were the first tribes to fall away into idolatry. But then he says, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so what Isaiah is saying, yeah, Galilee, that whole region spat in the face of God. They were the first ones to run away from God and be conquered by the Assyrians. And by the way, when Hezekiah, so within just a few decades, Hezekiah is going to try to win them back. He sends messengers up to Zebulun and Naphtali, and he's like, I want you to come and enjoy Passover. You have an open invitation. Please come home. And they ridicule the messengers that Hezekiah sent. So it's like this land, and and not just Ahaz, but the whole land is spitting in the face of God. And so the lands that were deepest into contempt in the former time when it was just anguish, that's where the Savior of the world comes from. And so Jesus is going to come forth and, and represent the tribe in some sense, even though he's from the tribe of Judah biologically. He represents Zebulon and he represents Naphtali and he raises up these lands that were, you know, shameful and he's going to make their heritage glorious because that's where most of the gospel ministry will take place. Mm. Um, he redeems them. It's really wonderful. Yeah. And so, uh, yes, and the uh, Isaiah chapter 9, you're welcome for the spoilers, folks. That's what we'll be looking at next week. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> That's the passage from week two. But, All right, uh, prepare to hear that again. Yeah, we'll hear that again. <laughs> so after he gets done with this this conversation with Ahaz, uh, basically telling him, don't worry about it, um, the Lord speaks a second time through Isaiah. Verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Um First of all, God's asking him, God's is basically telling Ahaz, ask me for a sign. I'll prove mm-hmm. myself to you, whatever. But what does it mean when he says, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven? There's, I mean, there's a lot there. So, I mean, there's a few different ways that you can go with this, and I think all of them are valid. But, you know, one of the questions, if you were to ask people, you know, what question would you have about existence? There's almost always they're, – they're either wondering, you know, why is there suffering? Why right. is there death? They're terrified of death. So mm-hmm. Sheol, that means the grave, uh, the final resting place, right? Or 
they want to know things about you know purpose or you know how things came to be or why things came to be it's it's high as the heavens but in in our terms of existence that spans the entirety so you can the highest you could go is heaven and the lowest you could go is the depths of the grave or hell and when when Jesus comes, by the way, when God answers this at the birth of Jesus, one of the things that's interesting is there's there's all these signs that are mentioned, mm-hmm. and the signs are what you know there's a there's a sign in the sky. Well, what is that? There's a sign in the heavens. This this star that the Magi follow. Sure. There's a sign in the heavens when the angels choirs come and they're you know you see them descending from heaven, coming to earth. And here's a sign. Hey, here we are from the heavens, the highest of heavens. We're coming here to sing praises of this baby that is God that we're going to find out in a moment, who's born of a virgin Mary, but. One of the most amazing things is when the angels are up in the heavens and they're singing, the angel comes forth and says to the shepherds, this will be a sign to you, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And that's always been funny to me. Like it's it's humorous because when you think, you know, here's a choir of angels in, in the heavens and they're singing and that's not the sign. <laughs> you know, like I'm thinking if you tell me I'm looking at a choir of angels in the heavens singing at me. And they say, no, 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 the real sign is a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. I'm thinking, no, 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 no. you're the sign. <laughs> you yeah. know, baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's, but what it's saying there is when you go and you look at this baby, which would have been in a cave that was hewn out of the side, these stables that are in Bethlehem, they're still there. They're caves in the side of the hills. And they would make their mangers out of these limestone blocks where the top of them were hewn out. And so then you see this baby who's wrapped in strips, which also wasn't normal, but the baby looks mummified. So here's a baby that's in a cave on a stone bed wrapped in linen strips. It would have looked exactly like a first century tomb. Mm -hmm. And so when the shepherds get there and they see this baby and it's a reminder of death, well, man, there is a sign that's as deep as Sheol. Mm -hmm. This baby is born to die. Yeah. He has come from the highest of heavens to the depths of Sheol. That's going to be your sign. And so Ahaz, when he had this opportunity that that all of us have probably really wanted to have is, I think, I forget which verse prompted it, but I remember putting this in personal worship a few weeks back where there was this thing of, you know, asking God a question. If you could ask God one question, oh, it was the story of the Jesus with the woman at the well where she mm-hmm. said, I perceive that you're a prophet. It's like she suddenly knew that she had a prophet <laughs> in front of her. So she could ask a question and know that it was going to get right through God's pipeline to God. And the answer that came back through this guy was going to be from God. And I'm, and I thought of, you know, I kind of thought about that for personal worship that week. I'm like, what if you could ask God one question? What would it be? Like you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. And so Ahaz had that opportunity. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz's answer, verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now that sounds like Ahaz is being noble. Like, I'm not going to put you to the test, God. And there's a, a verse in Deuteronomy uh, 6.16 where it says, Thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. But God had told Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Mm-hmm. So by Ahaz not asking for a sign, I think, number one, Ahaz was both, you know, disrespecting God and his prophet, saying, I'm not going to – he can't do mm-hmm. anything. I'm not asking for anything. And he's also, you know, he's bastardizing God's word here. You know, it's like he's he's chewing it up. He's like he's yep. misinterpreting it and misapplying it. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it's basically like he's looking at God who's saying, what else can I do? Because, remember, this is like multiple times that the Lord is pleading with Ahaz. And every time Ahaz spits in his face and says, I'm not going your way. Um, and now you have him saying straight up. Because before, remember, it's Isaiah. And so this time, it's is he speaking through Isaiah? We don't know, but it says the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So it's almost like he cut out the middleman now. Yeah. And here you have God speaking directly, at least in the text, to him saying, what is it going to take? Like, ask anything. I, I want to prove myself to you because my covenant with my people is important. And Ahaz is looking at all of those centuries of God's faithfulness and all of that. And he's saying – I'm not interested. Yeah. Basically, go away. Yeah. 
And then in verse 13, God is talking back through Isaiah again, where it says, and he said, that's Isaiah, um, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, it's like, I look at that, I'm like, okay, so now we have proof, we have evidence, biblical, scriptural evidence, God has a sense of sarcastic humor. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah. But, I mean, here do you see Isaiah saying, okay, I'm done talking to you, Ahaz. Now the promise is going to be the to the entire house of David. Yeah. So this, this goes to all the people that are under your rule and for all the generations to come. And so when it says the Lord himself will give you a sign, it's not singular. He's not talking to Ahaz anymore. It is now to the entire household of God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is amazing. And that's the well-known verse, verse 14, where Isaiah continues, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, I just put this out there as a, an aside just because people will people who are, you know, kind of pseudo bible scholars or or skeptics or whatever will will point out from time to time that that word for virgin there in the hebrew is a word that means a young woman it doesn't necessarily mean a virgin but we stand on that rendering of it because in the greek septuagint which is a which was done by jews jewish mm-hmm. scholars around 400 bc uh translating it they used the greek word for virgin and Mm -hmm. when uh peter was quoting that verse he used that word for it so we have confirmation that they understood that this meant a virgin right they use that word parthenos which is where we get parthenon talking about the the virgin athena right but so it's it's absolutely virgin and even in even in the hebrew the context of this is always referring to virgins well isn't a young woman who isn't married Correct. So right. it's assuming that she's virtuous. Today, that would be like, well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> might not mean, might yeah. not mean as much. But also, even just the context of it. And this is where like, man, when, when really, really brilliant scholars get involved, they can make really simple things complex yes. in a hurry. But think about it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive us. Like, why is that a sign? You know, like, a sign by its definition is something that makes you go, whoa, that's not normal. Right. You know, a young woman getting pregnant and bearing a son is not going to make the nation of, of Israel go, what? <laughs> you know? yeah. It, yeah. Of course, it's alluding to a virgin. That would be a sign. Yeah. Um, and then shall call his name Emmanuel, which that uh, Emmanuel means God with us. Mm hmm. Uh, now that's going to be the subject of your sermon on Sunday. <laughs> so maybe we won't go too far into that, but, um, you know, I, I mean, that's a pretty remarkable name mm-hmm. to, to give to a child. Yeah. And it, there's so much that's in this verse. Um, you know, if you went into the polytheistic world of, you know, ancient Greece or Egypt, you'll find lore of virgins giving birth to, you know, demigods or something like that. You know, you, you can find those. But in Israel, they were monotheists. We are monotheists. We don't believe in multiple gods. And so when this talks about a virgin conceiving and bearing a son, well, this is human, entirely human. It's not saying she gives birth to God. She's giving birth to flesh and blood. Right. And yet, this child does not have an earthly father because she is a virgin, which means there's something supernatural about the way that she's impregnated. It means that this child's true father is God, and yet his name is going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so in this one verse, you have something that shows that he's entirely human. He is flesh and blood every bit as we are. He is fully man. And yet his name means he's fully God. And what Isaiah's not doing here is he's not saying, oh, you know, now we're polytheists. You know, now there's another God who's become a man. No, what what this is saying, it's got a powerful punch that the God, the one true God of the universe has be, has has 
become a man. And now he is fully God and fully man. And when you get to Isaiah 9 next week, you'll see it says, you know, a son is born or a child is born, a son is given. And what are his names going to be? Mighty God, everlasting father. You know, and so Isaiah is driving home very, very emphatically the idea that God is becoming a man. Um, Mm. And that's stunning, really, really stunning. I mean, the fact that a virgin conceives and bears a son says his father has to be divine. Um, And then when it says his name is Emmanuel, it's saying he is God. He's God with us. I think some people have said, maybe I think I've even heard you say it, that Isaiah almost feels like it's part of the New Testament at times. Like Mm -hmm. he's writing so clearly about Jesus that it almost feels like it should be one of the Gospels. Yeah, I think it was Augustine who called it the fifth gospel. Yeah. And it really is. And and the idea you – know, one of the other reasons why it's so absolutely important that the savior of the world would be born of a virgin. So, you know, you look at surveys of what percentage of self-identifying Christians believe that Jesus was born of a virgin – and it's it's really surprising how many people choose to say, well, I don't really believe that. It's essential. It's absolutely essential that the Savior of the world is born of a virgin. And the reason for that is from the fall, sin is passed on through Adam, right? You read Romans 5. It'll talk about that, that there's a line of sin that's imputed from the Father down to his children. And so if Jesus were to have a human father, he would have inherited what was called original sin, this kind of almost spiritual, genetic, fallen nature. And this cuts there. He does not come from a line where he is inheriting this imputed sin, this original sin. And so he's born with innocence. He's born with righteousness. And that's going to be really, really important because when he goes to the cross – if he had been fallen, he would have been deserving of the cross, right? The wages of sin is death. If he'd have been born in sin, he could not have been our Savior. The Savior had to be totally innocent, positively righteous. And when the Lord goes to the cross, he's innocent. And therefore, when he goes to the cross, he clothes us with his perfections, his righteousness, his innocence. He has lived the life that we could not live And then he pays the debt that we couldn't pay by taking our sin upon himself. And so the only way that you can have an atoning Jesus is if he is born without sin. And the only way he can be born without sin is to not come from the fallen line of Adam. He has to be born of God. You know, I'm just in my mind as you were saying that I'm having this conversation, imaginary conversation with the Christians in that survey. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, so you tell me that you believe that Jesus died on the cross. Yep. And that paid for your sin. Yep. And he rose from the dead. Yep. But you are you don't think he was born of a virgin. Well, now, I don't want to go that far. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, and it's like, <laughs> rising from the dead? There, yeah, that's no problem. Born of a virgin? No way. I, I just Isn't wanna, that crazy? It's crazy. It is me. crazy. And I'm, I'm sure there's people out there who are like, well, I've never realized that it was important. But it is anyway, yeah. it's tremendously important. Yeah. I'm trying to find, I'm searching right now to see what the percentage is. But yeah. it was, when I heard it, I was like, holy moly. It is one of those things, though, that, um, you know, if you, you know, if we're going to sit there and have a conversation about what elements of the gospel must you believe, um, you're like, well, you know, you need to believe that Jesus died on the cross and paid for your sin, rose from the dead. You, know, you need to believe that these things are true. And I'm like, yes, but it, if you don't believe that he was conceived by a virgin, born without a, a human father, then his death on the cross is not, as you're saying, is not efficacious. It's not mm-hmm. a, it's not a salvation thing. It's like so. You know, if we're having the little checklist of what do I actually have to believe, one of them is that Jesus was born of a virgin. It's because otherwise, how can you believe that his death on the cross paid for your sin? If it's just some guy, then it's just some guy. You know, if it's not the son of God, you know, we have a problem. So, yeah. Um, then his death accomplished nothing. Yeah. So verse 15, this is this is one of those verses, as I was reading it, I thought, 
that's interesting. Next, um, because it well because it it is okay. It says he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So that's speaking of Jesus, of the child that's born. What does that mean? Is that like a like an you know? Like when he gets a little bit older, he'll understand what a Milky Way bar tastes like. I mean, what what are we getting? What are we getting at there? You know, I was reading through some of the old commentators on this passage, and it actually is really kind of hotly debated as to who exactly this is talking about. If this is still Jesus, um, and so when it when it says he when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, it's actually that's that's an kind of an idiom that means the age of accountability. You know, he's had his bar mitzvah. He's reached the age where he can be held accountable sure. is what it's talking about. And he will eat the curds and honey, which, you know, if uh, curds, do you know how curds are made? I don't, I don't even know that I exactly know, but it's like sour milk, right? Yeah. Cheese curds. Um, yeah. But it was seen as a good thing, you know, um, but it's milk and honey, you know, essentially that's what's going into this recipe. And that should ring some bells. Um, when when Jesus, or I'm sorry, when the Lord was was telling Moses and even Abraham before him about his promise to give them a kingdom, to give them a land, you know, he says that it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Mm-hmm. And so, and and the idea behind that, I think, this is a, a Sam rant, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, milk is associated. When you think of milk, you think of something that's associated with motherliness, something that's very nurturing, something that's you know, very intimate to to be at the breast, breastfeeding to produce milk or whatever. Um, and honey is known as the only food in, in nature, naturally, that doesn't spoil. Right. And so it's thought of as everlasting. That's the connotation. And so the land of milk and honey is intimacy that, and everlasting is kind of the two ideas behind it. I mean, it's literally not flowing with milk and honey, obviously. But he's eating the the fruit of milk and honey. Um, he's in the land. This is this is kingdom language, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I that's my opinion, and I haven't read any commentaries that agree with me. <laughs> you know, well, and some of the commentaries, or go that route anyway. Some of the commentaries that I read that get into who is this talking about? They look at the next verse. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And so that's one of the reasons why some commentators have said that these two verses, fifteen and sixteen are talking about a different child, a different Mm -hmm. he, because they're saying there's a time frame here as to when Ephraim and Syria will be, these. you know, they're no longer smoldering stumps, they're extinguished. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was less than 70 years from that time. Yeah. So they're... You know, that, that was kind of the, the argument for this is not Jesus seemed to be based on the time frame. They're like, this mm-hmm. kind of has to be talking about somebody else. Yeah. Um, Isaiah's so. writing, most people think he's writing somewhere around 740, 750 yeah. BC. And the date that's given for Assyria coming through and just taking northern Israel is usually 722 or 721. So we're talking two or three decades later. Right. The lands that he's talking about are going to be overthrown. So when it says, you know, the two kings you dread will be deserted, it's two to three decades, whereas Jesus isn't going to be born for seven centuries. Right. So, I mean, it, it doesn't disqualify Jesus. It's still right. true. I was just saying, it's know? still true. They're, <laughs> they're deserted even when Jesus is born, yes. <laughs> but, it, but it's a long time yeah. after yeah. The two kings are deserted. The land is deserted. Um, so again, though, this is there's obviously talking about a nose to refuse the evil and choose the good. That's just again, that's talking about a certain maturity before before mm-hmm. the boy is mature. Um, these two lands will be desolate. But I do love the fact that Jesus will come from the very land that he's talking about being left desolate and deserted. You know that's that's where he, mm-hmm. he's going to to grow up and start his ministry. Yeah. And then um, Isaiah tells you know the Lord speaking through Isaiah tells uh, Ahaz just exactly what this buddy of his, the king of Assyria, is going to do. He says, "The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria." It's like. Okay, so 
the king of Assyria is going to make things worse for you than the day in which your kingdom split in half. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when the I'm blanking on the king's name when Rehoboam Rehoboam said Israel to your tents. Um, <laughs> you know, when that, that was happened, Jeroboam. Jeroboam. Jeroboam is the one who called him and said, "We're leaving." Okay, so Let's Jeroboam split away. There's a lot of Boehms in there. I, just, I wasn't sure which one. So Jeroboam's, you know, Israel to your tents. Um, you know, that was kind of a – that was a big deal. I mean, the kingdom literally split in two at that point. So that had to be – it had to be chaos. And yeah. so Ahaz is being told here is that not since that level of chaos, that's what's going to happen when the king of Assyria shows up. Yeah. You thought Rehoboam was bad. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till Sennacherib shows up. Yeah. Yeah, Sennacherib is not a nice guy. Um, and then we have four clauses that say, in that day. So the day that's being talked about, this when the king of Assyria is going to, you know, when things basically are going to become very bad for you, there are four clauses here that are telling us something. Verse 18 says, in that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the cleft of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. So there's imagery here of flies and bee and ravines and clefts and where all these things are. When I was looking at this in personal worship, man, reading the commentaries, there's a bunch of different ideas as to what these things can mean. What do you think that it means here when the Lord is saying he's going to whistle for the, you know, the, the flies in Egypt and the bees in Assyria? What's, what's talking about there? Um, well, you remember the, the fly. That was one of the plagues that was released upon Egypt when the Lord was delivering the Israelites. That was, you know, in the fourth plague, he brings forth these, these bugs. Biting going flies to, or something. Yeah, yeah, that are going to plague Egypt. And the, the bee that's coming from the land of Assyria, well, that's not a pleasant thing. It, it's a sting. It's a right. very, very painful strike. It makes me think, you know, honestly, when, when it's just saying, because he's just referenced the days of Rehoboam, and what was the reason why the kingdom split in the first place was Rehoboam saying, you know, I'm going to whip you with scorpions, um, and he's just – he's harsh. And he's saying – God is saying, man, if you if you walk away from me, if you choose the king of Assyria, you don't know what you're getting into. It's going to be way worse than the worst thing Rehoboam offered you. And in that day, the Lord's going to call the flies, and he's going to call the bees to come after you. Um, and they're they're going to suffer even more at the hands of Assyria than they ever dreamed suffering under Rehoboam. Yeah. And I think that verse 19, where it's all will come and settle in the steep ravines, cleft of the rocks, thorn bushes, all the pastures. I honestly think that the God is just telling them, and they're going to make themselves at home. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you, you know, you're yeah. going to lose your, you're going to lose your sovereign control of these lands. When these armies yeah. show up, they're not just passing through. They're going to settle here. You know, this is yeah. going to be it for you. I mean, yeah, you think about that language. It kind of encompasses all the land, too. Where do thorn bushes grow? Well, they grow in the dry areas. Where are the pastures? Well, they're in the fertile areas. And the mountains and the rocks, like, there's no refuge from them. So it's like you're, you're going to be left without any place to find this peace. It's going to consume all of Israel. And if that uh, if that picture isn't rough enough, then he goes on in verse 20. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria. I, I like the I like the uh, the extra statement there. It's kind of like there's a there's a starts with a metaphor. The Lord's going to or not a metaphor, but imagery. The Lord's going to shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river. And in case you can't figure out what that means, I'm talking about the king of Assyria <laughs> with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. So. You know, a couple possible explanations I, I read, one suggesting that this refers to the people being um, cut off from the land and carried away into captivity. Hmm. Another one suggesting that it was a reference to the sort of emasculating and, hmm. uh, you know, they cut off the hair and the beard when they would capture you, which basically showed that you had been captured. You were you were no hmm. longer a man. Yeah, and that was – both of those fit. You know, if you you think about where where he's going, you know, he'll he'll talk about, 
you know, that the Messiah will grow out of the stump of Jesse. You'll see mm-hmm. that in chapter 11. Right. Um, and so things are going to be cut down. Like it's like this forest of Israel. Everything's going to be leveled. There's going to, this razor is just going to cut everything down. And I think that fits. But it also is like what you're saying that this was something the enemies did. Um, when they prevailed in military, they would shave all of their enemies that were conquered. And the idea of being, um, having your beard removed, it was like your masculinity was removed. You were emasculated and sent back. There's a, one of the stories involving David, F. Hugh Open. It's kind of, I probably shouldn't say this. It reveals the middle schooler in me, but it's kind of funny in Second Samuel chapter 10 where David actually gets conquered um, or he sends messengers. He doesn't get conquered, but he sends messengers to to somebody mourning the loss of his father and they, they capture these messengers. They shave their faces and they cut a hole in the backsides of their robes so that their butts are hanging out as they go back home. And that was the way to humiliate them. And so, yeah, shaving somebody, um, somebody who is your political enemy was a way to humiliate them. And I think all of that is, is caught in there. You see, and if you open up Ezekiel chapter five, so Ezekiel is going to live almost 120, 150 years after Isaiah. And so right before Jerusalem is about to be conquered by the Babylonians, he lets this prophecy go. And God comes to him and he says, I want you to shave your head, which is would have been humiliating for Ezekiel. But then he says, I want you to take a third of your hair and hit it with a sword, a third of your hair and throw it to the wind, and a third of your hair and scatter it around the city. And God was using that as a prophecy of what was going to happen to the people when they were conquered. Mm-hmm. And so this – by the Babylonians. And so this, this idea of shaving with a razor is very, very tightly connected to you are going to be conquered and humiliated. Mm. And then it almost seems like, you know, because those were two of the in that days. We've got two more to go here, in that day this and in that day that. It, it You know, I'm, I'm not sure whether this is – it sounds like the Lord's sort of taking his foot off the accelerator here for a minute because verse 21 says, in that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. Well, that's not a lot of livestock. That's just three things. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. Is that a good thing or a bad yeah. thing? So if, if you notice like before when, when Isaiah comes with his son – um, his son's literally named a remnant shall return. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a major theme of the prophets. Even in that prophecy I was just telling you about Ezekiel where he cuts off all the hair and does the three things with it. Yeah. God says, but take some of that hair and put it in your belt strap because they're going to return. Um, and so this idea of God preserving a remnant is all over the place. And so a, a man who has a young cow and two sheep this is this is not good. <laughs> you know, this this is he has been decimated. He's not a very wealthy man, and yet what's the Lord going to do with the limited resources? In other words, there's not much left, but with the limited resources, he's going to cause such an abundance of milk for them that they will be able to sustain. He is going to protect this remnant, even though everything else seems like it's all falling down. God has a remnant. And he's going to preserve that remnant until Messiah comes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's God's kindness. He's bringing judgment upon a very wicked people. But for those that were faithful who remain, God is going to to give even out of the scarcity. God is going to give enough to take care of them. For me, the imagery of the young cow and the two sheep made me think of a sort of pastoral nomadic existence. It's like if you, you know, he's not going to be planting his vineyards. He's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be putting down roots, you know, Mm -hmm. rather. He's going to be mobile. He's going to be able to to be on the move, going from, you know, pasture to pasture. Um, And I I think that can be part Mm -hmm. of it also. Um, The Lord is essentially saying that this remnant that remains, this remnant that's left when the judgment comes, this remnant will be looking for a new home. You know, that's, again, how I was sort of extrapolating forward from that to us today who, you know, the believers that are on the other side of another judgment, the judgment that fell on Jesus. 
um, we are the righteous remnant in that respect. You know, the, mm-hmm. um, narrow is the gate that leads to salvation. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. You know, the, 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 we're part of a remnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think God wants us to know that we shouldn't, you know, pack lightly. In other words, he's like, yeah. you know, you're, I, this is not where you're going to stay. This is not your home. I've got another place for you. I'll provide for you while you're there, but you need to be ready to be on the move. <laughs> And I think that's that is a theme that runs from cover to cover in the Bible. You know that that we are sojourners here, aliens. You know, it uses all this kind of language for us repeatedly all throughout the Bible. Um, you look at Abraham, and we're told that Abraham was blessed with you know really pretty incredible wealth after coming up out of Egypt, huge huge crops. Isaac, same thing. You know, blessed with crops a hundredfold. Everybody's envious of him because of how much he has. Jacob will eventually run into tons and tons of wealth. And yet when you read in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that even though they had all this money and they could have built palaces and lived the high life, it says that they lived in tents because they were looking for a, a better country. They were looking for a city whose builder and architect is God. Like, they were sojourners. This right. was not their home, and they recognized it. There was something better to come. And in the New Testament, even on this side of Jesus, we're, we're also told that we're sojourners, that ultimately this fallen world is not our home, that God is making all things new. There's a new Jerusalem to come, a new heavens and a new earth to come that's going to be ultimately redeemed. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that we go, all right, well, then let this place you know, go to hell. <laughs> that's right. not what it's saying. What it is saying is there's a fallen nature to this world that's going to frustrate our efforts to make this place like heaven. And as much as we try, as much as we try to pursue justice and righteousness and peace and all of those things, it's a fallen world and right. things are going to be broken. And so don't despair. This is really, really hard for me. Don't despair when you see this world just falling apart at the seams because you have a citizenship in a country and in a city that is unfading, unshakable, unconquerable, and your inheritance is absolutely secure. Put your hope there. Yeah. So I think you're right, yeah. yeah. Even even though there may not be an abundance and we may <laughs> – you can look around and and say, man, you know, things things seem – in terms of righteousness and justice, things seem pretty scarce. You know what? God is faithful to give you what you need. He yeah. will take care of his remnant. And I think that that's, um, that carries into this last in that day, the fourth one, verse 23. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there. For all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, <laughs> but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. I mean, obviously, there's some briars and thorns going on here. Um, but I just, as I read that, I thought, you know, God is telling these people, you're not going to be comfortable here. You know, and, and, I think that's what, you know, as, as we're talking about the frustrations with this fallen world, I, I think that we, you know, it feels like they just, we want to find a way to get comfortable with everything. I'm like, I don't think God wants us to be comfortable <laughs> with everything. Yeah. The more comfortable I am, the farther I feel like I've probably strayed away from what the Lord wants me to be doing. Yeah. And, you know, my life should be oriented in such a way that I'm always just a little uncomfortable with what's going on in the world around me. Yeah, when I when I look at this world, and I think this is where a lot of people are are now. Um, you know, it's not even so much a hunger for you know the financial side of things or you know the economic comforts. Though, if they were stripped away from me, I'm sure they would become pretty important in a hurry. Yeah, uh, and that would reveal all kinds of idols that right now I don't recognize in myself. But it's the hungering for a world that's just more decent. Um, that's that's more at peace. That's more just and kind. And I can't like I, I wish I lived in a world where there wasn't twenty four hour news and the internet and all that stuff because that's <laughs> the, that's that yeah. is where my briars and thorns are yeah. that I have a hard time accepting. Um, 
and and I just rail against it. I I I want my thousand vines. <laughs> you know, I want to see heaven here in that sense. And I'm not talking about you know a big house or luxury or anything like that. I just want a world that's good, yeah, um, and kind. And and you know, there's a, there's a poetry that's throughout the Bible that I that I think is very intentional for us to see. Um, and and maybe not, but this is where I you know when I hear. The Bible talking about how everything that's a thousand vines, this vineyard, this garden, this really wonderful thing is going to be turned into this kind of hellish, desolate place of briars and thorns that's talking about Israel. You know, every time that God manifests himself, I won't say every time that God manifests himself, but in some pretty important scenes when God manifests himself in the Old Testament, he comes in the midst of something that bears thorns. So like when he... When he's introduced to Moses in the burning bush, the word there, the Hebrew word, is a thorn bush. Why would he? Why would he do that? Like this is the one physical manifestation of the curse. Then this bush that's on fire, and yet when God is there, it doesn't get consumed. But God is in the midst of the thorns. Mm-hmm. You know, He builds the 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 Ark of the Covenant, which is the place where His glory dwells, out of acacia wood, which is a massive thorn tree. That's where he dwells in the midst of thorns and you see him on the cross and it taking all the stuff that we hate that I contribute, by the way, with my sinful, selfish, stupid, you know, nature and those thorns, the, the manifestation of the curse of man and all of our evil and all of our rebellion that makes this world so desolate, you see him wearing them. Yeah. You know, he takes the thorns and it becomes his crown. And there's there's something that's, you know, beyond just a means of torture, there's something that's truly meaningful in that. He takes the curse of man and he wears it as his crown. It's it's like it's almost invitational. It's saying, Hey, I am a God who who enters into your suffering and now I make it my crown and by it. Now you all relate to me. You are all my subjects in this fellowship of suffering. But because of what I'm doing, because I bear the thorns and I go down into the grave and I defeat the grave and I defeat hell and I defeat all the powers of sin and death, now in me you have the hope that you'll be restored to the land of a thousand vines. Yeah. You know, you're going to be restored to this heavenly hope and you can trust in me and lean on my sovereignty to know that none of this is a surprise and that all of this is being worked out from suffering to great glory. And that's exactly what he's painting in these early chapters of Isaiah. God is, God is going to come into the world to bear the briars and the thorns yeah. for us, which is amazing, amazing. And it actually – you know, it reverses the curse that mm-hmm. God put on the ground in Genesis 3. I mean, we, we kind of started off talking about Genesis 3 and God's promises. And here at the end, we're talking about, you know, the, the reversal of that curse, if you will, you know, he, where he told Adam, look, cursed is the ground because of you. Um, in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. You're going to plant you know, vineyards, and you're going to get thorns. Mm-hmm. Um, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And that continued until Jesus, you know, bore those mm-hmm. thorns. Uh, and now, you know, the, the, you know, and we, and we look at that and we're like, okay, so, you know, Jesus did this. He paid, he, he bore this penalty. He bore this curse. And yet still the ground is cursed. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it, it leaves us with this sense of yearning for a day when the Lord comes back and there's just not going to be any more thorns and briars anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you won't, you won't find many people on this planet, at least mentally well adjusted people <laughs> who look at this current reality and go, ah, oh, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, this is exactly the way it should be. You know, there's something in us. This is a, you know, from C.S. Lewis who says something along these lines. 
But there is something in us that recognizes, you know, it's instinctual that this mm-hmm. is not our home, that this is not, there has to be something else. Yeah. Because, you know, what he says is, you know, the, the fish instinctively want to swim and it just so happens there's water, you know. And so all creatures are created instinctively to live in their homes. And this world doesn't fit our instincts. So perhaps we're made for a, a, a different world, a yeah. better world. Yeah. Um, I think that's absolutely spot on. Yeah. Well, that's a good word, and it's one that we're going to end on for this week. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, folks, that it's been profitable for you. We do encourage you to correspond with us if you have a question or a comment, uh, something that we've said today that uh, – you know, piques your curiosity or, or raises some issue and you'd like to reach out to us, our email address is out of water at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, everywhere that fine podcasts can be found. You can get out of water there. Um, we hope that uh, you will follow along with the message series also that's being preached on Sundays. Uh, Sam's going to be preaching this Sunday, so uh, you get to hear him talk about this chapter again <laughs> on, on Sunday. Uh, so uh, you can catch up with those uh, at our website at com or through our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app available for your iOS or Android devices. We'll be back next week with another in our series, Good News of Great Joy. And we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.